we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. Welcome to another exciting episode of Gratuitous Sex and Violence, the podcast where I got a sweet tip for you. I got a tip. I got a tip. I got a sweet tip for you. You're incorrigible. Sex and violence get together and produce a baby called Schlock. Mm. You want it? You want your tip? You want your tip? Huh? You want a tip? You want to publish it? You want to publish it? You're incorrigible. You're incorrigible. I swear. I swear. I don't know. That's the only That's the only word I know. The from, only noir the word era. you know is encouraging. Pretty much. Encourageable. <laughs> yeah. Um, my name is Orlando, and I'm joined by my guest roommate and co-host, Ned. How's it going, Ned? Oh, you know, just, uh, just living that life. Living large in the city of dreams. Yeah, very much so. You know, New York City um, is. There's a lot of big cities, I guess, that are considered city of dreams, like Los Angeles, Las Vegas. Well, I guess Las Vegas is more like a sin city, but but uh, but New York is one of those cities that's considered a city of dreams. Yeah, yeah, I think that New York would probably be if if someone said city of dreams to me, probably New York would be the first one to come mm-hmm. to mind. Maybe L.A., but maybe more likely New York. But there's a lot of, like, grit, I think, that's associated also with uh, New York that L.A. doesn't have. Yeah, like, There's, no, like, definitely. a hard lifestyle Oh, yeah, no, here. New York's, yeah, New York's definitely the tougher town, mm-hmm. for, sure, for sure. So we're going to watch a very New York movie tonight. Okay. Okay. We're going to watch Sweet Smell of Success. I'm super excited about this movie. This is a 1957 American noir film directed by Alexander McKendrick, Starring Burt Lancaster, Tony Curtis, Susan Harrison, and Martin Milner, the film tells the story of a desperate press agent, played by Curtis, and a powerful and sleazy newspaper gossip columnist, played by Lancaster, who uses his connections to ruin his sister's relationship with a man he deems unworthy of her. It's a lot of like great seedy stuff in this mm, movie. Have yeah. you ever watched this movie before? Uh, I have not. No. Um, have you ever heard of this movie? Sweet Smell of Success. The title. The title sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't think I realized it was a noir film. Yeah, they, I mean, they also made it into a musical. Um, Marvin Heimlich wrote the music for it, but it was not well received at all. So, mm. um, but uh, it's I, it's it's one of those. Films that came like at the tail end, like you know, when we think of the classic noir um, era, it was like the like the 1940s, like right after the war, like 44, 45, yeah. through the mid 50s. Yeah. So this is 1957. This is definitely like at the tail end of the classic noir era. All right. But this is a lot of people would consider this a prime example of classic noir. All right. Um, it's it has everything it has like the gritty like city dynamic it's got your sleazy um morally dubious characters it's got desperate acts of double crossing it's got hot dames you know to use the mm-hmm. parlance of the day uh there's a lot going on in this movie and actually what i'm really interested in and in, you know this is going to be our first black and white movie on gratuitous sex and violence. Yeah. And 
it's, it's like when you think about it, you know, like our podcast and, and we're trying to like watch schlocky films and B movies and stuff. There really isn't because of like the censorship laws that there were back before the 70s. There really isn't a lot of black and white cinema that could be, I don't know, that would fall under the purview of this podcast, I think. Yeah, for the most part, I'd agree with mm-hmm. that. Um, but if there is one genre that you could point to and say, yeah, that has a lot of gratuitous sex and violence, even if it is like somewhat sanitized, it's nor. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I think I think I think we're yeah I think we're long I think we're long overdue to to dip our toes because I right. think in a, in a way the sense I get is that like you know a lot of a lot of the a lot of the sort of the revolutions of of the noir genre kind of were what led to the kind of rating dynamic that we have right. in films today in terms of just like, you know, that that push and pull with censorship and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And, and and the impression, I guess, that noir films were definitely pretty big in terms of like pushing right. that. And in fact, uh, whenever we had the, the new Hollywood revolution in the 1970s when we had, you know, uh, the lifting of censorship and um, the new talents coming up like Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, all of them, um, one of the things that these filmmakers explored was film noir because they could finally do it in an uncensored way. And that that gave the rise of neo-noir, right? Like, yeah. that's where we get movies like Chinatown and um, The Postman Always Rings Twice. You know, uh, movies... L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential. Well, that's that's more like in the 90s. But, um, but yeah, like, you know, those are still examples of neo-noirs. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I feel like the, what, what you hit on is, is very is, is very astute. Like, yeah, the noir film is something that kind of led to the lifting of Hollywood censorship, and then um, new Hollywood kind of paid homage to that by what, by making neo noirs. Yeah. Um, I, a lot of other th- great things about this movie that I want to kind of highlight before. We, there's a lot to unpack in this movie, by the way. Yeah. Um, I, when I watched this movie yesterday for research. It was such a great experience that I actually watched it twice in a row nice. last night. <laughs> nice. That's 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 a rare film because like even even like though a person's like tastes will vary. Mm-hmm. Like there's very few movies that like that I can think of that I'd like be totally down to watch right. twice in a row. Right. So uh, very few for me too. Yeah. Very few. But this was definitely one of those movies. And, uh, and just, there's just a lot going on. I want to... Did You watched Uncut Gems, right? I did, yes. So we uh, we both loved Uncut Gems. Yeah. I kind of want you to like think of this as a proto-Uncut Gems. Okay. okay? That's, that's a take. There's, I like this. There's a lot like of like this. tension, anxiety in this movie. Okay. Um, I want you to look at like the use of cam- the camera work. Um, how like movies nowadays... You know, we shoot for coverage and we edit from the coverage. But back then, especially some of these neo-noirs, they edited during the take, which which resulted in these exqui- exquisite one-takes that the camera's just moving around and the blocking of the actors, and you're basically getting like three or four shots wow. within one take. Wow. And it's, it's mind-blowingly great. And also, like... I want you to keep an eye on, on, or an ear out, on the dialogue of this movie. Okay. So a lot of great goodies to unpack in this film, all right? All right, right, I'm ready. Are you ready to watch Sweet Smell of Success? I'm I'm very eager. (laughs) I'm eager, I am uh, naive, and I'm ready to, uh, I'm ready to have my naive notions completely torn asunder by the 
the powers that be. I am excited to watch this movie again for the third time in two days. <laughs> nice. And if you guys at home want to watch this movie, it is available to rent on Amazon Prime. If you have a subscription, it's absolutely free. Um, if you don't have a subscription, just pay the money because it's a great movie. It's fantastic. So we're going to break and watch this movie. Then we'll be back in a second. We're going to play some trivia and we're going to discuss Sweet Smell of Success. We'll see you on the other side. Smell you later. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship. No emotion. Just sex. We are back! Oh, yes, we are! We just watched Sweet Smell of Success. Mm-hmm. Now, kind of ironic, when this movie first came out, it was not a huge success. In fact, it was a pretty big disaster. Uh, lost a lot of people, a lot of money. Mm. Bird Lancaster, who starred in the movie as J.J. Uh, Hunsecker, he was one of the producers of the film. Oh. And he lost a lot of money, um, and he was looking for you know a lot of people to blame. He blamed his producing partners. He was not very happy. Um, but now, many years later, it, it's found a new voice, and a lot of people look at this and say, oh, yeah, that's definitely one of the greatest noir films ever made. That's um, interesting. You just you, watched this for the first time. Yeah. What are your first reactions? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think um, for starters, uh, again, like I mentioned before, the title sounded a little familiar, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize it was a noir film. Like, right. in comparison with something like The Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep right. or Double Indemnity, like, it's not necessarily like a... It's not necessarily like a, a noir-ish like title, in a way. Sweet Smell mm. of Success. Right. At least, at least that's... It does evoke it doesn't immediately evoke like a noir sensibility um but uh i thought this movie made pretty great use of the location of new york city um oh yeah it's like it's it was really interesting because it, it like it had this gritty feel to it because like um you know there's a fair amount of time spent in like fairly glamorous apartments and hotels mm-hmm. and clubs and stuff like right. that and restaurants but there's a lot of like but there's also a lot of like that it's it's the alley outside the club and it's the underpass like and 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 uh you know crammed in the backstage so the film actually does a pretty good job of like uh, giving you this sense of like, yes, there are all these like, you know, rich, powerful people who are kind of, you know, living their lives. But like, it's really the story about like, you know, the sort of the underlings right. who are scattering about trying to make it all work. And it and all takes place basically in Midtown, like in the Times Square area and around Midtown. Exactly. Yeah. But and, like you, but right. you have this like great variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and Which if you go to Times Square today, it's like crazy because you see like all the lights and the glitz and the glamour, but there is still a kind of like a seedy quality lurking in the edges and the shadows. Yeah, it's kind of like when you, you know, when you kind of go one block up from like a block that has a lot of theaters on Mm -hmm. it and it's like, these are just all the stage doors. Right. A lot of of construction, a Mm -hmm. lot of dark corners and stuff like that. Um, I also thought it was interesting how even though it was a black and white film, it still 
felt very vibrant and colorful to me. Yeah, that's the thing. There's yeah. like a lot of yeah, there's a lot of like dichotomy there, I mm-hmm. think, that the movie makes a lot of good use of. There are lots of like dark scenes, but then also a lot of like really bright, vibrant scenes. Um uh the story itself was def- definitely had me like on the edge of my yeah. seat. Like it was it was really it was really dense, I know that very there of, dense. Like yeah. there are definitely a lot of details that I'm certain I missed, so mm-hmm. I fear for myself uh, when trivia happens. Um <laughs> but uh I really um, yeah, I found uh, the the main character whose name I'm now blanking on. For Sydney, 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 Tony yes. Curtis. Very, very, very. Uh yeah, yeah, very memorable name actually throughout the film. Sydney Falco. Yeah, Sydney Falco. It's actually a great noir name. Yeah. Um, and uh, and his character really is like this perfect. This per he really does sit in like a perfect like gray morality. I mm-hmm. mean, I think like very very unsympathetic, yeah. but at the same time very compelling to kind of watch him because like you throughout the film he really is like at the edge of his robe. Right. It feels like yeah. so so it's like even though you see him just like constantly wheeling and dealing and doing all these despicable things to people. Um, you kind of can't help but like I don't want to say root for him, mm-hmm. but you're 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 always interested to see what he's gonna do. I mean, next. you're you're following um, his story, so yeah, yeah. You're, so I think, like, yeah, you're definitely on his side as far as a, a spectator is concerned. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, so, he plays desperate weasel very well. Yeah, he, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> well, and especially because, like, I mean, I, I I love that they they make a point of really drawing attention to his uh, his dubiousness right. and and All to, the time. and to the fact that he is not trustworthy because mm-hmm. it's 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 so great to just kind of have that subconsciously in the back of your mind as you're watching how he puts on all his different faces mm-hmm. for different people and he and he really does like such a perfect job of like going back and forth right. between yeah. like you know those moments where the mask is off and you really see he is like hollow and desperate mm-hmm. but then like he really does turn on the charm and manages to talk wheels or you know talk circles around right. you so um so yeah it, it's definitely definitely a real noir story and and interesting that there were no private investigators um interesting that you know the only police we see are definitely like corrupt, corrupt as hell yeah. and racist to boot yes like, it's not a hard-boiled story it has a it's it's interesting because it has a it's a noir it has all the elements of noir but it's like it's about the journal. It's about journalism. Yeah, it's, much. About, it's about journalism. And it's about Broadway and, mm-hmm. and and you know gossip and the arts. Yeah, the like, gossip column. But right. like, but like, there's such a menace to it. There's an oh, undercurrent yeah. of menace. Um, definitely as far as uh, JJ's character oh, yeah. is concerned. Um, that's a really great performance. Cold evil. Well. <laughs> like, yeah, cold and evil, and just like. So domineering and just, uh, yeah, they, they do a really good job of just sort of like setting him up. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's the whole, it's the whole third man thing of mm. just that like, you know, they, they do a lot of like setting up who this guy is. And then when you finally get the moment to see him, it's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, I 100% get why this right. guy is such an imposing mm figure in in both Sydney's life and and I'm sure all the other people whose lives revolve around him so uh, we'll talk more about the details of this movie here in a second but before we go on a little bit further let's play some sweet smell of success trivia mm-hmm. 
All right. So as always, the trivia is going to be five questions and a bonus. Hmm. They go in order from least difficult to most difficult. Okay. And the grand prize is a bragging rights. All right. I hope. I hope. But again, it was a dense movie. I know there were things I missed. So it was a super dense movie. Like I said, after I finished watching it last night, I immediately started it over. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Also because it's like really good, and I was like, whoa, I want to see that again. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to start you nice and easy. This is going to be super, super easy here. Question number one. Why is JJ freezing Sydney's clients out of his column? Uh, he is doing this because he wants JJ to... He wants Sydney. Sorry, JJ wants Sydney mm-hmm. to, um, to get uh, JJ's sister... Susie. Susie to break up with her boyfriend, the guitarist guy, Steve. Steve Dallas. Steve Dallas, yeah. That's correct. He wants to break up Susie and Steve. Yeah. Again, it's like, uh, it's it's such a... One thing that I love about the story, like we talked about how dense it is, and it's dense in because it's rich in detail. The backgrounds are packed with action all the time. There's something interesting to look at. The way that the blocking is... Uh, the camera work is phenomenal. The dialogue is like, it's like popcorn dialogue. It's so thrilling to watch these yeah. people talk. But the story itself, the relative, the plot is relatively simple. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that like, um, yeah, like like packed with detail, um, a lot of stuff going on, mm-hmm. but like you pretty much always understand the general thrust of right. what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also like... In certain scenes, there is something about the dialogue, and I'm, I'm having difficulty still, like, putting my finger on it, so it might come out in later discussion, but, like, there's also something a little Shakespearean about it, mm. especially, like, the scene in the theater. Maybe this wasn't, maybe this wasn't by accident, but, like, especially, like, the scene in the theater where, like, you know, you have Sydney and Steve and JJ and, and Susie, like, all together, and mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's like, it, it, the scene had a Shakespearean experience feel to it in the sense that like you have like these little scenes in advance of it where it's like you know Sydney and JJ know what's up and they have a plan and 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 then JJ runs into Susie before they come in and then and then they're all in the room together and you see that like there is a plan being executed but it's all pretense right and and so it's just like so fascinating to sort of see all these characters like kind of talking wheels around around yeah. each other um, and, sort of, sort, and sort of circling closer and closer and closer mm-hmm. to the issue at hand. It's very which thrilling is, to which watch. Is, which <laughs> is like when the thing blows up. Right. And, and yeah, and there was just like something that very much reminded me about just like, you know, the sort of like Shakespearean conventions mm. of rhetoric and, right. and sort of like, you know, look, I'm not, I'm, I I wouldn't necessarily say the thing, but I'm going to say the thing. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, so they're just like that that sort of back and forth that I thought was really, really compelling. The screenplay... That scene was my favorite scene. Oh, it's a great scene. Now, the screenplay is written by Clifford Odets, who was a protege um, of Eugene O'Neill's. So, I mean, he's got chops, and he wrote a bunch of screenplays. And then um, it's based on a story. Actually, Ernest Lehman um, wrote... co-wrote the story with him but it's based on a novel uh lehman's own story that that he wrote himself uh and it appeared originally uh in the april 1950 issue of cosmopolitan interesting little side note here 
the story was renamed Tell Me About It Tomorrow for Cosmo because Cosmo's editor did not want the world the word smell in the pub publication. Interesting. That's how deep like the censorship was back then. Hmm. But um, but Lehman was a former press agent, so he a lot of this was from experience. Like oh. And That's in, cool. And in fact, like, J.J. Uh, Hunsecker is, is based on Walt, Walter Winchell, who was an actual gossip columnist at the time that uh, Lehman had dealings with. Yeah. Um, now, when they brought in Odette's, they brought in Odette's mainly to, like, to punch up the script. And it was really funny because what when I was researching it, they were talking about how... Um, what normally they thought that the Odets would take like a couple of weeks to punch up the dialogue, but he actually ended up doing it as they were filming it. So for four or five months, as they were filming the movie, um, Odets will take would take every scene, every page, and write it up. Uh, you know, deepen the character, the relationships, change the scenes around, and rush those pages to the set so often they were filming pages that they just like just received wow. that morning That's and i cool. feel like that gives it like a really cool energy too like you can kind of tell that that sometimes the acting is like edge of your seat even you know like the way they're a little bit it. yeah i mean yeah there's like there's definitely like kind of a, a sort of a, a rough a rough up feel to it you mm-hmm. know what i mean like it's just kind of like yeah, they're just they're just all fucking going for it, right? Um, which, yeah, yeah. Which those are those are the best acting situations for me. I know in my experience, like mm-hmm. when I when I when I'm doing something very cold for the first time, sometimes that's when it just has that juice. And the the director Alexander McKendrick, uh, when he read through these pages, he was a little concerned about how the dialogue would translate because you know he's. You know, they say some pretty mouthy stuff. Like it's a lot to say. Yeah. But what he realized was that. Uh, what what Odette's was telling him is like, well, if if the actors deliver the lines like they're not important, just throw away the lines, then the yeah. dialogue will sing on its own, and that's what he realizes. Like, if you have if something difficult to say, don't focus on what you're saying, just throw it away. Yeah, yeah, you gotta just like power through it. That's really cool. Yeah. Here comes question number two. <laughs> we spent so much time talking about one. We did. Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> What's the name of the comic that Sydney solicits? Ooh, oh, oh, fudge. Uh, oh, Harry Tribe? You got the consonants right. Scribe? Mm-mm. No. No, I give up. Herbie Temple. Herbie Temple, fuck! <laughs> good lord. It's a good name. I thought maybe it would be memorable. But that's yeah, a scene. Is. That's a scene where you like you were talking about how you see his different faces. Yeah. And that's a scene where he drops the desperation. He picks up. Actually, it's his job to give items to JJ. But he picked up that item from JJ. Yeah. And then he goes and pretends like he's feeding the item back to JJ. Yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah, I, I loved how he pulled that. It's just, it's like it's just kind of the the way he the way he makes something out of nothing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it, it's it. it it's, it's very telling 
feeling of like who his character is that he's just like oh like what especially because it's like everybody's like always accusing him of like not doing his fucking right. job and stuff like that and and part of me is like well he's, he's running around wheeling and dealing but like then seeing that scene where he's like oh he's just gonna like make up that he like put this line in the column mm-hmm. like oh yeah no he really does just like <laughs> pick up table scraps and and right and, and and polish it up and I really I really loved how at the very end when he's like getting drunk after after um, he implicates uh, or frames flat out frames Steve Dallas um, and he's at the club drinking and then Herbie comes back and is like hey we decided to hire you and he just basically offers it up to I guess like he was drinking with his press agent buddies and he's like does anyone want any like scraps you know he's like yeah because he's done with it because he's think that he's he he toasts he's, to success he, you know yeah, he exactly like, he, knew, he, he knew he'd made it he has the column right like, yeah and then only what is it that say pride comes before the fall right yeah exactly <laughs> all right now we're going to question number three yes now when sydney goes to um the club early in in the film to blackmail the uh, columnist his wife loretta asks sydney to sit if he knows anything about what? Uh, if he knows anything about uh, the horse races. Horses! Correct! Yeah. Horses. yeah. Correct! <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like it's kind of... I don't know. Like, you were talking about how the scene at the theater or at the TV show was your favorite. It's really hard for me to pick out a favorite because I feel like every single scene is just so solid. That's the thing, yeah. Like, everything in the movie is, like, kind of a set piece in its right. own way, you know? Like, it's just, like, uh, yeah, there's just, like, uh, you... Because, like, you have such a clear understanding of, like, what it is that that Sydney needs out of this next encounter, mm-hmm. right? Like, you are, you know you know why he's there, and, and then it's just the whole scene is just, like, watching him just, like, sort of duck and weave right. through, like, every like, obstacle imaginable. He definitely falls a lot, but he picks himself back up. He's like a cat. He lands on his feet all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, here comes question number four. Yes. Now, he does fail to blackmail um, that columnist, but a different columnist finds him or sees him at the same club. This is another example where he lands on his feet. He kind of uses it to his advantage. Yeah. The other columnist is called Elwell. He brings him back to his place to meet Rita. Now, here's the question. Where did Elwell and Rita previously meet? Because Elwell says that she's familiar and she, he keeps feeding her, like, suggestions. Yeah. I think the one they landed on was Palm Springs. Correct! Yeah, it's there. Palm Springs! Yeah, that that whole sequence was gut-wrenching. I'm certain we'll get back to it We're going to talk about that in a little like, bit. Fuck. That's yeah. all I got to say. Like, <laughs> that, was, that was awful. That was awful to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's yeah. go to question number five. Uh, so, uh, this is the hardest one, I think, because, again, like... All, uh, there are a bunch of like little details in this movie, but this happens really early on in the movie. Uh, which client Sydney calls to appease him over the lack of mention in JJ's column? It's like the first guy that he calls on the Ooh. phone. Oh, what's I, the name of the guy? Oh, I don't have the name. Um, I'm pretty sure. Sh- I think the as far as who he was, he was the uh, he was the owner of the. Club, right? 
He was a owner of the club, yes. A owner. Yeah, or he was he was the owner of we, the, we, of the, we got the two first, of them. He was the owner of the club that uh we that 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 we first see Steve playing in, right? The second one. Oh. Van okay, Cleef is the owner of the first one. Okay. Joe Robard is the one with the second one. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Well. So his answer was Joe Robard. Joe Robard. Okay. Cool. Yeah. But that uh, was, yes, now it makes sense why he then was like, oh, you gotta plug Robart when he was right. talking to him. Okay. Right. Great. That, yeah, the, again. The details are just details. massive in this That's movie. The, they're just, yeah, they, 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 they come and go, and, and yeah. That was a really hard one, but maybe the bonus will, you know, hey, help you. Because hey. he did do too bad. You got some, some bragging rights. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if we can make up some of this. All right. Now, this was Alexander McKendrick's American directorial debut. Something interesting about Alexander McKendrick, he never filmed a noir before or after this movie. In fact, he's better known for directing comedies. And his other famous film is a British dark comedy that he made in 1955. It's a pretty famous British dark comedy. But here's, you know, I'm not going to ask you flat out what it is. I'm going to give you a little context because this film was later remade by the Coen brothers in 2004. They both have the same name. What is the name of the movie? Ooh, shit. And I will give you one more clue if you absolutely want it. Wait, wait. All right, Coen Brothers, 2004. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. God. I, I should be way more knowledgeable about the Coen Brothers mm-hmm. filmography than I am, just like as a basic white boy. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, he, um, they haven't made a lot of remakes. It's not... You want me to give you the clue? No, uh, give me the clue. Okay. Give me the clue. I'm going to give you... It's a two-part clue, all right? All right. Alec Guinness plays a character in the original film that's later played by Tom Hanks in the remake. Lady Killers! The Lady Killers! Oh, there we go. Okay, phew. And wow, that's crazy. Did not realize that Tom Hanks was playing the Alec Guinness role. Right. That's pretty fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. Um... Mm Now it, uh, it wasn't yeah. uh, it wasn't one of the Coen Brothers' well most well received movies. So I actually saw the Lady Killers mm-hmm. too. Um, I just it, it just completely slipped my mind. But like I now that now that we now that we settled on it, I do remember um, at the time knowing that it was a remake, mm-hmm. and everybody was like, "Oh, the original one is better." <laughs> the um, original one is better. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> no. I yeah. I remember that being the consensus of those I watched. But it is crazy that McKendrick like, never directed another noir again because no. he seemed like he did a pretty fucking good job. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he, he had it for this one. I mean, it like, yeah, it just, yeah, it, it really popped and it really just, yeah, you, yeah, you're sitting in that. There's a line in the movie which you actually pointed out. It was like the only time in the movie that you spoke to me. Yeah. Because you were so riveted. Yeah. Um, and this is my favorite line in the movie. And cool. I think... I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear you love that movie because it's such a good line. And I think personally that this line is is it perfectly describes the movie itself. Yeah, for sure. 
And it's when uh, J.J. Hunsecker says to Sydney, I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. I feel like this movie is exactly that. It's a cookie full of arsenic. Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Like, that actually, yeah, does perfectly encapsulate the movie. Yeah, because, like, you know, like, there is, there, like, it, it, again, it's like there is a glitziness to it. Mm -hmm. Like, you are getting, like... You know, it's interesting because, like, when I when I think of black and white films in general, and right. this is already bad generalization because there's a lot of film before we got to color, right? Um, but like, generally, the the overall impression I get of older film is that it generally kind of tends to focus on. You know, the, the rich and glamorous, and a lot of what Hollywood is depicting is rich and glamorous people. Right. And so, like, this film does kind of deliver on that, like, yep, this is a portrayal of the high life, but we are also... But again, we're also, like, getting the seedy underbelly, too, of, like, what makes it all work. And mm-hmm. it's, like, it, it, it does a good job of just kind of giving you this sense that, like, you know, all of the, all of these fine people are, are propped up and enabled by all of these seedy people who are, like, you know, give, getting them what they need. But the, like but the interesting thing is that we never, we never actually see uh, very, I mean, very superficially do we actually see the 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 top level glitz because these are people JJ Hunsecker all the columnists they're Broadway column Broadway gossip columnists yeah but we never actually see any of the actual Broadway theater life like we never see actors actresses yeah. any of that posh and glamour these are people just like scrapping around for like to use the parlance of the film two bit scraps you know like they're just fighting over these low level <laughs> clubs in Midtown Manhattan, <laughs> you know, so it's yeah, it's like they're bit. just like at the bottom of the. Yeah, you get a sense that that they also have you know they also hit big because the first time we meet JJ, he's well, sitting he, with a senator. Well, that's the thing. He's sitting with a senator and and he's wielding all this influence, mm-hmm. like you know, it, you know, like, like the fact that he's got a phone at the table yeah. and stuff like that. Like you know, yeah, definitely, you you definitely get the impression that like he. He wields all the power at mm-hmm. that table, even in spite of the senator's presence. No, he's like, way more powerful than the senator. Um, yeah, like so. Um, so, so maybe a big part of that is just the the, the gravitational pull that JJ's character mm-hmm. has on the film, because that's that's sort of what I. He is the most top in the yeah, film. Yeah. He has a national syndicated column. You know, yeah, he's got that huge apartment and all that stuff. Um, a TV show. Yeah. So, um, but but yeah, no, like yeah, but yeah, a lot of grit and a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of just like yeah, all the churning that's happening underneath and all the jockeying for influence. So, there is yeah. an interesting aspect about the culture um, and and of of the careers that of the, that these men have. You know, um, this is was made again in the nineteen fifties, nineteen fifty seven. Um, the power that was wielded by these gossip columnists. And also yeah. the press agents at the time. I feel like that relationship is something that we don't see today. Like uh, press agents today, they do something completely different. They don't try to get their clients' name out there anymore because clients don't really have a problem with putting their names out there. Like a press agent now is more like damage control rather yeah. than trying to promote a client. 
Um, so it's it's less it's a less desperate job now. I feel like, yeah. or is it, it's a different well, job. Well, it's, well, I guess yeah. I guess like the it's it's the entity of the gossip columnist that I guess it it feels like it shifted a little bit because I right. think it's like we have tabloids today. TMZ well, would well, be like similar role. A little bit, yeah. But also, it's like that. I, well, it was interesting, just like kind of seeing the way JJ like. After the theater scene, the way he's still like all steamed up and like wants to right. completely fuck over Steve, and yeah, he, talks he doesn't about let it go. And when he talks about like how you know he's like he insulted my readers, mm-hmm. and, and he talks about like how you know, un-American, he, of like Steve. how un-American yeah. was he? And and so it was just like so so that kind of like it, for me, what that evoked was like that evoked like kind of the the sort of. Um, uh, kind of uh, pol- uh, almost almost more of like uh, the sort of political editorializing that we see today. The pundits today, like a yeah, Fox like News pundit, pundit. Like punditry, mm-hmm. like was was what that sort of struck in me. So it's and they like, have like similar power, I think, dynamics. Yeah, and, and so it's like, it's like it, it feels like, you know, it, it's almost like the gossip columnist of that era was a little more holistic mm-hmm. because they talked about politics, but they also talked about culture. Right. Whereas like, you know, obviously just, you know, multimedia presence has has gotten so diversified right. that like now you you don't have as many of these like juggernauts who like are the big authority on everything right. it's more like now we've just got all these different pundits who are and plug in whatever they and want pundit, but also but punditry also, is pretty much gossip in well a way. That, yeah that is the thing it's like there's <laughs> there's a lot of fair criticism mm-hmm. about punditry and right. about how like it's like what the fuck do they actually know yeah. and all that stuff so and 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 also like you know there's there's always questions that come about around like who who is the one feeding them their lines because there's a lot of there's a lot mentioned today about like uh, pundits like tucker carlson sean hannity um who have president trump's influence exactly and they mentioned in this movie Sidney falco has a line where he talks about how um jj has a have they have he has the a president's ear like the president's even like pay attention to jj hunts exactly yeah so um so yeah yeah that just yeah there was some there was something about that that really that that i felt get, injected the film with with something of relevance that lasts even if it is very dated and of its era that it's like well there's still yeah there's still something to this 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 uh, this relationship to power that mm-hmm. like the media has and, right. and and all of that so yeah just like thirsting for the for those yeah just bits. like thir- yeah just thirsting for any bit of influence give me the item give me give me the item and and the and 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 the lack of integrity to oh, go yeah. for it and right. and and the willingness to you know discard anybody to get it. Um, so as I mentioned before, this film parallels the uh, real life Walter Winchell, who was a gossip columnist uh, um, from the fifties, and in and, and a lot of different ways. Actually, uh, it was it's a pretty transparent take on Walter. Um, and, and Walter Winchell was so obsessive about his daughter's love life that he had her institutionalized as being emotionally unstable with the help of FBI, FBI director. J. Edgar Hoover, Jeez. and they forced her lover to leave the country. Uh, now, that's paralleled with J.J.'s relationship with his sister. Um, according to TCM's Eddie Muller, whenever the movie failed at the box office, Walter Winchell was delighted. And at a preview showing of the picture, an audience member commented, 
don't change a thing, just burn all the prints. Uh, and he was he he didn't burn all the prints. Instead, the movie failed, and he was really delighted about it. But here's the interesting thing: was that whenever they were actually making the movie, like I mentioned, Burt Lancaster, he was not happy that it was a failure. And one of the reasons why he was upset was that he felt like they were giving Walter Winchell ammunition now to criticize the film. So that's how much power Walter. Uh, Winchell had was that even the makers of this movie that was kind of satirizing Walter were afraid of not of being successful because then they would feed into the power that Walter had. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's so yeah. It was like that disappointment that like they 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 couldn't were, stick it to were, him. Kind yeah, of they were worried that they couldn't. Yeah, and and that yeah, it would just allow him to continue to have his power. Yeah, that's a thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting that that it is like a direct reference to the the real Walter um and uh yeah that's there's there's something that's that's pretty bold that's pretty bold I, I I appreciate that and uh yeah let's go into the first of our GSV segments this one's called shot 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 shots now because this is a pre or a censorship time era movie the 1950s movie there isn't a lot of, like, you know, graphic violence or death. There are no deaths in this movie. No. No. There's just, like, the I one... thing. The one uh, mention of someone who committed suicide. That's the only thing. Yeah. And But we do have an instance of almost death, and we definitely have a few violent scrapes. So what do we what do we got in, in the terms of violence? Who gets beat up in this well, movie? Well, uh, so, well, the, the the implication seems to be that Steve uh, gets beat up when yeah. the cops uh, when the cops accost him after he's framed for having you know, that mar- damn mar- police brutality, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> um, it it never went anywhere. Um, so uh, so he definitely got gets uh, mussed up some, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and it's kind of you know shot around. But um, <laughs> our, our good old Sydney ends up getting roughed up by the right. cops at the end of the movie before they haul him away after uh, JJ hangs him out to dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so yeah, that's kind of like the only. Well, we got uh, we got uh, JJ and Sydney. JJ beats him up after he catches him at the apartment. He says, you, "Is that why you laid a hand on my sister?" And then he just like slaps him a couple, a few times. Huh? I guess I, uh, I must have missed the slaps or something. I don't remember the phys- I don't remember there being really? a real physical altercation. Oh, there. but it was a pretty lengthy fight scene. He was just like he punched him a couple times and then just slapped him back and forth. And that's when Sydney was like, "Hey, you're the one who told me to go to the cop with the." Well, yeah, I, I, I remember JJ was like advancing on him, but I yeah, I, I, I didn't contact. remember blows necessarily landing. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. uh, oh, okay. Well, then, well there later. you go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> I, I, so you gotta so watch the movie de- again. There's so many details in this movie. Okay, I'm just I'm still trying to catch up. Because my question was like, why do you think they made the decision to show that fight and not show? The 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 other altercations, the other ones, as you said, are kind of like implied Shot around and implied. Um, I mean, I think for, for, I mean, the movie clearly isn't showing much respect to the cops mm-hmm. to begin with. Um, you know, a, a pre- yeah, pretty, pretty unsympathetic presence for police. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I'm I, I would imagine that perhaps they <laughs> 
Perhaps they just didn't want, you know, considering they were already showing the cops as being corrupt and of a dubious moral nature, they probably didn't want to, they probably didn't want the audience to reflect too much on it by seeing cops actually take part Mm. in morally dubious violence. So that's probably why it's probably just, you know, wanting to keep the keep the propaganda alive as much mm. as possible even if the the movie was already showing them in a pretty unflattering light right that, yeah. that's my guess maybe yeah it's interesting though um I, I was thinking it could be something like that it could be just be that maybe they have a, like a certain quota of violence that they could put in a movie I don't yeah know. something like that yeah that's the thing i don't know too many of the details about like the the censorship rules um certainly though i mean i will say that like you know even without that much in the way of actual depicted violence um certainly there's uh yeah like a, a sense of menace to the film and, oh, and, and so. a lot of verbal sparring like, yeah um especially whenever jj is involved oh. he's just he he really does wield his language i want to talk a little bit about the more about jj he was played uh, very memorably by burt lancaster yeah. um, what do you think about the performance and and you can talk about Tony Curtis's performance, like both of them. Like, what did you think? Yeah, of that? no, I mean, well, it's just like it's just sort of like there's just a almost a, I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll get in trouble for like using this word, but almost like a kind of a sociopathy mm. like uh, quality to him, and just sort of how you know how how little regard he seems to have for people around mm-hmm. him. Like, it's just, it's so clear that, um, yeah, that, that for, that, that he really is only in it for himself. Right. And, um, and all that stuff. And, and, and that he, and he is, he has achieved enough status in his life that, that he doesn't, that he doesn't have to show any deference to anybody. Right. Um, and, and, and like, and, and and I guess when I say sociopathy, like I yeah, it does kind of bring to mind like you know, there's like this you know this thing that I've I've seen said. I don't know how true it actually is, but like I've I've seen it said in conversation that like you know the uber wealthy all basically are sociopaths mm-hmm. because there's a lack because, of empathy. Yeah, there's just like such a sheer lack of. That that like yeah to 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 accrue that much wealth and that much power and influence like you just you you have to not have any sort of regard for your fellow man in right. a way and um uh, so so like that's just kind of the impression that I get from him that he just is one of those people that is almost like almost like power and influence incarnate in a way and and he stands in such stark contrast to um, Sydney because mm-hmm. like Sydney is all. Also, an incredibly amoral person. Um, you see, Sydney struggle a bit with like, you know, certain moral questions in the film to an extent. There's like a little bit of struggle here. It feels like Sydney has morality, whereas he, JJ probably doesn't have any morality. Yeah, I, I, I say barely because Sydney, Sydney, definitely, you know, throws himself into quite a few tactics that just are abysmal mm-hmm. to to the people involved um but like 
there is still there's still like a hint of empathy in in uh, in Sydney's character. Um, but also the other side of that is the fact that Sydney is somebody who does not have status and who does not have right. influence. So that means that like for someone like him who doesn't have that kind of power, he does have to show deference and he does have to like he does have to at least appear to be empathetic and mm-hmm. to be on people's side. Right. Um, the thing is, he he does it so he's done it so long and does it so well that anybody that knows him knows that he's not to be trusted. Um, but for anybody who's just meeting him for the first time, everybody who meets him for the first time in the movie is very taken in by him, and he he appears to everybody to be very affable mm-hmm. and and uh, and a friend and able to help them out and stuff like that. Um, now a lot of people. Uh, they say that part of the reason why this movie wasn't successful was because the film kind of toys with the audience's expectations on the image of who these actors were. Now, Tony Curtis was a, was a heartthrob. He was, I mean, he's a pretty good looking kid, you know, and uh, he was known for having like these lighter roles. And this is like his first like meteor role that he purposefully took because he wanted to show a different image of himself and he wanted to do something with a little more acting chops. And Burt Lancaster was, is was a leading man, you know, he was naturally handsome. And in this movie, he kind of like doesn't play his handsomeness at all. You know, he plays like, like we were saying, cold evil and almost like lack of empathy and all that. Um, How do you think that the movie plays with their image? I mean, specifically like, let's talk about Tony Curtis, because I think like that's really the, the sharpest change there. Like he's a, he's a, I, there are even people who, there was that scene where um, one of the, uh, like a, a girl was like, "Oh, are you an actor because you're so pretty?" Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I I I liked that detail because yeah, I, uh, that's that's the impression that I have of Tony Curtis too. I, mm-hmm. I don't know that his work that much. I think he was in um, some like it hot, right? Like, I oh mean, yeah, that's, yeah. That's Jeff that's Blaine. the only other movie that I remember him being the Spartacus. In. Um, okay, cool. Um, but like, yeah, he. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, the film definitely works that contrast very well. And and I think, like, yeah, there is there is something that's kind of, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's almost like the film's a little too smart for its own good in a right. way by having that line where where she calls him out as being an actor because mm-hmm. he's so pretty. Right. Um, but, but the movie clearly, you know, again, that's a very early scene. So that's, like, one of the first opportunities that we get for somebody who knows him well mm-hmm. to... Sp- explicitly spell out oh no he wears many faces he is not to be trusted like don't expect regular tony curtis in this movie (laughs) exactly yeah and and so the movie does a great job of like calling that out and you and you you see it a little bit in the beginning like you see that he certainly has struggles and he has you know certain ambitions for himself but then like uh after introducing that little joke like yeah that's that's what we get we we get the the many faces and the many things that he's willing to do and and um and and it's yeah so i think it works to great effect one of the uh, major stresses when they were filming this movie on location in new york city um during the large crowd scenes there they had to fend off groupies of fans tony curtis fans who would break <laughs> through the barricades to get near him while they were filming <laughs> that's um that's uh that's fun that's fun. Now, for Burt Lancaster, uh, this, I found this really cool. The cinematographer in this movie was is a man called James Wong Ho, who 
or, or I'm sorry, uh, James Wong Howe, okay. um, who is brilliant. His work in this was phenomenal. And um, here's a couple of things that he did to help Lancaster's performance. He actually, they ended up using... Wait, is this the cinematographer you said? The cinematographer, James Wong Howe. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they actually ended up using Burt Lancaster's real glasses because they liked the solid brow on them. So they ended up using those. And James Wong Howe, um, he spread a thin layer of Vaseline on the glasses to create a shine and make his stare more menacing by not allowing Lancaster to see clearly through the glasses and not focus on who he was talking about. It gives him a glass-eyed stare through most of the film. Ooh, that's fascinating. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because that's the thing. Like, there's just... Yeah, there was something about, yeah, the way he was peering through his mm-hmm. glasses throughout the movie that was very arresting and very He also shot him with a wide-angle camera um, from below him a lot to give him, like, a stature, an imposing stature, mm-hmm. yeah. and then bri- brightly lit him from above to cast the shadows of his glasses on his face. Mm. So overall, like they did, they did a really good job of making him just seem very menacing. Wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. That's really brilliant. <laughs> um, let's go into the next segment. This one's called Boob Tube. And again, uh, we're dealing with a time where there wasn't a lot of nudity and sex portrayed on film, but there is a lot of implied sex in this movie mm-hmm. and Absolutely. very much very much like even there's there's non-problematic sex and there is definite problematic sex we want to talk about the the problematic sex first let's talk about barbara nichols performance as rita mm-hmm. the cigarette girl yeah she's the second major character in the movie and i will say this um even though back then i feel like you know there was a you know female characters and it, it, that's still a problem to an extent that are not as well fleshed out. But the two female characters in this movie, they are pretty well fleshed out for the amount of screen time that they have. Yeah, I, I, I would say, I would say yes for the amount of screen time mm-hmm. they have. To be sure, um, I would definitely say like ain't necessarily saying much, right? Like, not yeah, like they don't I, factor I, into I, the overall plot. I, I yeah, I, I definitely um yeah, not not to get too ahead of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so so maybe I won't, but like yeah, I think certainly um a, a fair amount of a fair amount of short changing definitely occurred as far as like just the level of detail that their characters get versus like right. just the level of detail that the, absolutely the, the male counterparts get. But Rita is a um, is a very compelling and interesting character to me. She is yeah, definitely. I I mean, I think like it. The I, I guess part of uh, <laughs> I keep I keep finding myself almost slipping into like part part three talking points. <laughs> so I don't want I don't want to do that mm-hmm. just yet. Um, sorry, what was the point you were going to make about? Well, Rita? let's talk about Rita as a character, yeah. like her performance and the character of Rita. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think like yeah. I mean, she yeah she's like an interesting character because I think like you know. Yeah, the, the the cigarette girl is kind of an archetype in mm-hmm. a way. Um, uh, again, having not seen that much noir, but like I would imagine it's a familiar sight. Um, well, noir has an archetype of like a femme fatale. We don't really have this that in this movie. No, we it's don't. interesting that she kind of she kind of has fills in that role of the femme fatale, except that 
instead of the femme fatale having any power, she's what the twist of it is that she's kind of powerless in this. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, she's still the one who kind of ends up, you know, coming to the main character for help. Right. Um, yeah, she's, she's in a tough jam Mm -hmm. that she can't get herself out of. She thinks that Sydney's a friend. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and yeah, and I, and I and I mean like yeah, her performance is like heartbreaking. Very really. heartbreaking. I, I mean, I think uh, you know, uh, I guess a preview of of my part three talking points is just kind of how like um, yeah, there is just this like yeah, very sad earnestness to her as she's like trying to explain to Sydney like you know the situation that she's mm-hmm. gotten herself into, and he's just so dismissive of her throughout it. Right, it's like it's so she's not clear. even paying attention. Yeah, it's so clear that like his focus is everywhere else mm-hmm. except on her, and um, and then uses her like obviously like Rita is interested in him sexually. That's part yeah. of the reason why she why trusts she's there. him exactly. Yeah. And and then he uses that to his advantage by basically pimping her off to yeah. the columnist. Yeah, which again I think is like another sort of. Like, like reversal of, or uh, I guess maybe a subversion of like the the noir story formula because mm-hmm. I think like usually when the femme fatale comes for help, uh, you know the the hero kind of you know tries to you know tries to do right by her right. and tries to get her out of a tough situation. And in this one, it is the exact right. opposite. Like he just straight up puts her into a into a very awful Yeah, position. he doesn't have any principles. And, and, and he yeah. has no qualms doing it at all. Yeah, that's the other thing too, and, and that's why I hesitate to give him too much credit for like having any sense of morality or empathy, because like he he at least on camera shows no hesitation about going about doing this like it's just so clear that like he he gets the thought when he sees the little girly magazine in the club right. and that's and that's all and that's all it takes together. and and but he's, he's actually been scheming and, something similar like before because she's the one who feeds him the tip that um that the other columnist made an advance on her that's the whole reason that he's at the club to begin with well yeah and at the club when when she's like hey do you like are, are you gonna help me do you have an idea and he's like I'm, I'm i'm thinking about it so he he's like sort of like wheeling his way of like how do i use this to my advantage anyway exactly yeah that's the thing he's filed it away mm-hmm. like yeah that's a thing it's like i i yeah i i did not have high hopes that he was gonna do much for her mm-hmm. to be sure the way he was brushing her off like that um and like like, as scummy as could be expected, like, when he tries to use that info to blackmail the guy, mm-hmm. like, again, I think it's, like, for the morality of the time, I was like, well, I guess I get why he'd do that. But, like, still very scummy. Right. Um, and then, yeah, for him to then sort of strike out on that gambit only to then find, oh, well, I'll just pimp her A out nastier instead. gambit. Um, yeah, so... And what you were saying earlier about how that scene was really hard to watch, it is really hard to watch because he's like basically manipulating her. But it's it's not a it's not a manipulation because she's very clearly against it. It's more like he just like puts her in a position that she can't talk her well, way out of. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just like it's 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 like gaslighting. Right. It's just like the way he's like he keeps talking. Yeah, he keeps like he's like back. I'm like, doing this for you. Like, I'm doing this as a favor. Right. You know who he is. Yeah. It's like it's like as if as if there's isn't this no what you other, wanted? Yeah. Yeah, it's awful. It's 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 just so fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like that's the kind of sex that we're dealing with in this movie. It's like we're we're basically like men are controlling 
um, a woman's agency, and especially like their physical yeah. agency. Yeah, and it happens from and and it's interesting that we see it happen from Sydney towards Rita because it very prominently happens between JJ and Susie. Like that's the main, I think, um, external conflict of the film is the fact that there is some sort of unnatural attraction between JJ and yeah, Susie. Yeah, there's some definite incestuous mm-hmm. undertones to mm-hmm. the to the relationship. Certainly uh from JJ's side. Mm-hmm. Like you definitely get the sense that like he is obsessed with mm-hmm. her and in a very potentially problematic way. Very problematic um, <laughs> To be sure. Sexually and, problematic, and, for sure. And he, yeah, so he just, he, yeah, he, it, yeah, it's it's very, uh, yeah. And, 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 he, and again, it's like the only way he can express that is to just control her agency. And, and, and he and gaslights her, her quite a bit, too, in the scene at the, at the TV show in the theater. Yeah. When uh, he's like, oh, Susie is, is free to speak up whenever she wants. Say what you want, dear. And then yeah. Steve is like... Those deer sound like daggers. You oh, know? and and then she's about and then she's about to start talking, and he says, "I'm sorry, Susie," and right. just talks right over right. her, and then she just can't even finish the. Oh my god! Like, like the scene, the yeah. scene. There's again, there's so many good scenes in this movie. Um, the scene when she initially comes into the apartment with the newspaper, and they're having their little back and forth, um, and she's like, "I'm happy," and he's like. There was once where you would come to me without hesitation to have this out, but now I have to call you. And she's like, well, we're having an out now. And then he's like, well, wait a minute. I let you talk, now let me talk. And she goes, "I, but I haven't said anything. Yeah. <laughs> and the way she's like, so, like, she's literally afraid. The poor girl is, yeah. her nerves are shot in yeah. this movie. She's like, whenever she's with him in his presence, she's so timid and, like, I don't know, yeah. like, you know, we, he just controls every single aspect of his life, and it's very uncomfortable to yeah, watch. Yeah, it is. It's it's striking, really. And and again, it's like, I think, like, you know, and, and it's like, it's just, it's so clear how much the men dominate in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's just like, and and so it's like, I, I wish, I wish that, like, you know, a little more... I wish that there was a little more to be said for for the women in the movie, uh, but but by the same token, it's like it's clear that the movie is is saying something very specific about the way men right. use women. Right. Um, and, Absolutely. And yeah. And and I and and I and I don't think the film is not is is necessarily uncritical about it. It's mm-hmm. just like yeah. It's no, just, it's, it's very prevalent. Susan yeah. Harrison plays Susie. What did you think about her performance? Um, I thought it was a, I thought it was a, a good performance. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's very much in, in the vein of, like, a noir ingenue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there isn't necessarily anything about her that, that necessarily, like, subverted my expectations. Um, it, it was interesting that, like, she definitely had this sort of, like, sense of growth, uh, by the end of the film in, in terms of, like, that final scene in JJ's apartment where she kind of... You know, manages to get the better of Sydney, right? Like when you know she first tries to dive off the balcony, mm-hmm. but then JJ comes home and mm-hmm. she manages to, you know, through not saying anything at the right moment, mm-hmm. to to sort of turn the situation right. against Sydney. Um, and and so it's like it's and there is like a bit of growth there, but at the same time, there is that great scene between her and Sydney in the cab um, mm. very early right. on, where she. Where she really does call Sydney out on the fact that, like, he, you know, 
the, the way she she keeps saying, "I wish I could see what's actually going on in your right. head," because like of how Sydney's always just like, "Oh, I love JJ. He's right. great," and she's like, "You don't. You right. absolutely don't." So right. it's like she one hundred percent like has an understanding of the power dynamics that are at play, mm-hmm. like very early on in the movie. Um, and uh, and 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 yeah, the performance I think very much highlights that. Um, now she only made uh, Susan Harrison only made two films. This is one of them. The other one was Key Witness in 1960. Hmm. Um, so she she didn't have a lot of experience in film, but I think that, like you said, that kind of helps out, like with the ingenuous naivete about it. Yeah, that's the thing. She's got a bit of naivete, but like not that much. And mm-hmm. I mean, like certainly, you know, the the love scenes between her and Steve are you know your your standard love right. scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, they they gaze longingly into each other's eyes, and and we know what happens. Steve is like that's a different story. Like Steve is kind of a, like he's supposed to be this like hip jazz cool cat, but he's kind of a square. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> weird, and also like just like uh, you know, like I'm just uh, like I'm sorry. This is like the '40s in New York. Like, why is the vast majority of that jazz group white? Like, right? There's only one black guy. Yeah, only one black guy in in, in the jazz group. Chico. Like, yeah. So <laughs> um, now I do agree with you about the about Susie's growth. In fact. I kind of feel like, so whereas the arcs for Sydney and JJ are kind of like, they're kind of tragic arcs. Like you're talking about Shakespearean. Yeah. It kind of is tragedy in that way because they kind of like, they seal their own fates very early on in the movie. They, the, all they do is just follow what they did, what their actions to their inevitable conclusions. Yeah. The only character that's really allowed to have an arc of growth is Susie. Yeah, and 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 I appreciate that like that her character gets a gets a gets a liberation at the end mm-hmm. of the film. Like I actually think that that's that's pretty cool. That's pretty pretty awesome. In fact, it visually we're helped along with that motif because um, throughout the movie, Susie is never seen without her fur coat, which uh, JJ makes a point of saying that he bought for her, and then Steve says, uh, this fur coat, I hate it because it represents JJ. Yeah. Uh, she's never seen without the fur coat until the final scene in the film where she first wears the fur, then it falls off her, and we see her um, in just the, the nighty, and then she put he, JJ puts on a bathrobe on her, and then she changes into a more modest wool coat to signify that JJ's influence on her is gone and she leaves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck yeah. So there's, there is definite agency in her character, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, no. I think, I think yeah, her, her character definitely, you know, um, among the women characters in, in the film, um, hers definitely is, I think, the most richly realized, mm-hmm. um, to be sure. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it is, it is a good arc. I think, you know, again, I think a big part of it is, is that, you know, it's, it's the only, you know, sort of somewhat satisfying right. or, 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 you know, well-realized arc that we see. And, and, you know, it's, that's, that's as much a, a product of the time in which it was right. made as it was just like, you know, the writing decision. Cause we never, we never get, um, another Rita scene, which, Probably would have been nice to round out her character a little more. Yeah, that's a thing. Like, it, it, well, it's just like, yeah, that that whole situation is just so heartrending as it is, and like, yeah, it just, it, it's just, it's so unfortunate that at the end of the day, the movie views her as just as disposable as right, as Sydney, Sydney does. does. Um, Let's go into the next segment. On that note, this one's called. Uh, that's problematic. problematic. Yeah. 
I have a couple of things that I want to talk about, but what did you pick out that was problematic in there? Um, I mean, we've already covered a fair bit of it uh, during BoobTube um, as far as just, like, um, you know, that there's there's a, a, a fair amount of misogyny to right. the film. Um, I think that, like... I, again, like, you know, the, the whole scene of, of uh, him coercing Rita... Um, into, you know, performing that sexual favor. Um, you know, it, it, it was gutting to watch mm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know how gutting that would have necessarily been to an audience of the time. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing about it, is that I, just, that I find so stark is just, like, about how how awful that was to watch, and it's like, yeah. But it's like, played up as, a, as an awful act, right? Definitely. That's, a, that's the thing. We're yeah, not like supposed I, to think that it's okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think the film, yeah, I definitely think the point of view of the, of the film is somewhat clear on that. It's just like, yeah, 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 that, that scene was definitely, yeah, just very, very tough. Uh, there, there, there's a, a, a bit of casual racism kind of thrown around. Right, a little as, bit. Yeah, as the character as the cops, of the police officer, yeah, right? Yeah, as far as the character, yeah, the police officers are concerned. We get one instance of Sidney saying the word spick. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, he says it kind of derisively, but he still uses the word. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and, and, and I mean, I think it's like the, the way he said it, 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 it felt to me like, you know, he he had just as little respect for mm. any non-white people as mm-hmm. as as the cops did, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and I mean that that does kind of accentuate just like you know again that it is a predominantly white film again in spite of the it's fact- interesting to me just jumping off of what you just said and and what you mentioned earlier about the guy in the jazz quintet there was only one black guy in the jazz quintet yeah and and again like you know like like. You know, you could just, have made that character black, Steve Dallas, I think, and it would have, I think, resonated, especially for the time. Yeah, it would have resonated a yeah, lot. Yeah, I absolutely, yeah, I absolutely think so. Yeah, Cer- certainly. Again, just because I think, like, you know, yeah, like I, I think they're, yeah, they're, 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 they're yeah, like I, I think it was much more common to see black jazz musicians back then than white. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Sidney Poitier could have played that role. Um, and and yeah, and I think it would have it would have been much more interesting. I mm-hmm. think to um to yeah to have a, a black character mm-hmm. um, as uh, Susie's. Uh, Amour, as it were. Then you would have added another layer to the depth of the movie. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, especially, I think, yeah, as as far as, like, just how vulnerable he would have been to the the whims of the police Mm -hmm. and and to, um, you know, accusations of, uh, of, you know, using marijuana and stuff (laughs) like that. Like, that's, yeah, that's a thing. It's like, um... Yeah, I think that that would have that would have I think been a much bolder statement for the mm-hmm. film to make. Absolutely, kind of, I think uh, that the attitudes towards marijuana are pretty problematic in the movie. Like nowadays, we're like, yeah, marijuana, big fucking deal. It's still illegal, but you know, generally the consensus is big fucking deal. And in yeah, this movie, they're acting like it's like the worst thing anybody could ever yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, I almost found that to be quaint in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, it is very I, quaint. I guess, yeah, that's that's I guess maybe part of the insidious thing about it that that. From my perspective, I was like, "Oh, that's so quaint that that uh, that a gossip columnist saying someone smoked marijuana mm. would ruin them and their chances of integrating." You dope smoking commie, dope <laughs> smoking commies. But like, you know, yeah, the truth of the matter is, back then that was a very, very serious uh, allegation, mm-hmm. and and 
so, yeah, I think that does speak to just both the problematic nature of uh, America's relationship to marijuana at that time and, and how deeply rooted that was in racism, uh, as well as uh, as well as just, you know, the, the whole red scare. <laughs> uh, Martin Milner, who played uh, Steve Dallas, he's actually better known for his performances in Route 66 at Adam 12. And he actually ended up playing a police officer uh, or a, a more square laced character than he does in this movie. Um, But it's interesting that he plays um, with a group called the Chico Hamilton Quintet. Now, the Chico Hamilton Quintet is an actual group that they hired for the movie. Yeah, I noticed they were in the credits, Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool. So, like, the only only black guy in the band, he was the leader of the band. That's Chico Hamilton. Yeah. And that was his band. Um, And they were chosen to play in the jazz band because... They represented the West Coast and the cool jazz styles popular at the time. Um, but uh, this this makes a lot of sense. Can I just uh, uh-huh. uh, sorry? I just want to interject a little okay. bit that like because um, just because my dad um, uh, about maybe like five or so years ago got really really into um, got really into jazz uh-huh. and into jazz history and stuff like that and and sort of like talked to me a lot about it and like at the time I was like mentioning like oh yeah Dave Brubeck and dad was like oh Dave Brubeck's the worst cause, cause, <laughs> because because he's all cool jazz and stuff like that which was just like when all these white musicians came in and, and like you know just you know you know brought in their west coast sensibilities right. so it, it, that was that was when it just it, hey it, east coast it, west coast has been a fight like tale as well old as ex- time exactly a little bit but, spanning the but, genre <laughs> but, but yeah, so so I, I I was really excited that you brought up the whole cool jazz thing because mm-hmm. I think that was sort of like when when you started to see a lot of like more white musicians who who right. also were like bigger names too and or who became bigger names mm-hmm. and and sort of rode in on the coattails of like the you know the greats who who you know first trailed right like, exactly and and all that stuff. and yeah. to and to kind of like build on that the Chico Hamilton quintet they had a reputation of being clean as opposed to a lot of the other acts that were maybe more predominantly african-american yeah. they did not have a, 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 a reputation of being clean now in in a kind of like um art imitates life kind of twist to this the producer screened the members of the band for months to make sure that they weren't drug users really? to, uh, mm-hmm, to avoid giving again to avoid giving Walter Winchell anything that he could use against the film. <laughs> that says a lot. That yep. really does say yep. a lot about the era in which this film was made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have to cover their asses, but that, that's, that's the kind of lifestyle that they're portraying on this movie, and they're afraid of it in real wow. life. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, man. But I, but that's definitely problematic. Yeah. Well, and, and that's that's very telling. Uh, yeah, just like all the all the perils that come with trying to do satire and, mm-hmm. and try to try to really land your hits. Um, fascinating. I want to talk a little bit more about the cinematographer again. We we mentioned him earlier, uh, James Wong Howe. Yeah. Um, like like I said at the beginning of this of this sh- uh, episode. One of the things that's that's really riveting about this movie is the way that it's shot. Like yeah. another another um, trick that he did was for those interior nightclub scenes, they slicked oil all over the walls to give like the scenes like a kind of like sweaty vibe, you yeah. know. Um, and the way, like I was saying, like the way that they shoot one takes to where you basically get three or four camera shots in one take. 
Yeah. Um, how did what did you feel about the camera movement and how it uh, how it just melded with all the, like the dialogue and the jazz and everything? I thought that they were, like even the camera m- movement was very like jazzy and snappy. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly again, like the film just kind of always has this like forward momentum to it, mm-hmm. um, and and really just sort of like you're you're always following Sydney as he's kind of like stumbling out of mm-hmm. one encounter and into another encounter, and um, so uh, I mean, I certainly I think the camera work I, I I tried to catch it, but it was mostly a little bit invisible to me, which you know I guess is maybe a good thing. But, right, um, absolutely, you're riveted with the story. Yeah, yeah. So so it um, did his job well. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so it was certainly doing its job, but um, but yeah, no, I think um, yeah, it was very deft and and yeah, certainly had a lot of flexibility to it. And again, it's like you don't you don't get a lot of camera movement mm-hmm. from films of this era for the most part. But um, but yeah, no, I think the the film definitely. The film definitely has like a very fresh feel to it, and 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 also just like it, it's a very packed movie. That's the other thing too oh, yeah. is that like there's they they make really good use of just like filming in these tight locations and and but still having the visual clarity to like know that you're following you mm-hmm. know Mr. D'Angelo as he's as he's working his way through the crowd to try to you know tell Sydney off or whatever. Right. So um, right. Yeah. The way the camera follows the characters is uh, yeah, it's really really yeah. cool. Uh, and the way that the scenes are lit are just, I mean, everything about this movie just works on a whole other level. I wanted to talk about something problematic about uh, James Wong um, from a behind-the-scenes look. And I'll give you a little context first uh, before I bring it up. This is nothing to do with the movie, but I just thought this was interesting. Um, so he was born in Gangzhou, China, and how, imita- uh, how immigrated to the United States at the age of five and grew up in Washington. Yeah. He was a professional boxer during his teenage years and later began his career in the film industry. He started out, out as an assistant to Cecil B. DeMille. Um, and then he pioneered a lot of things that we take for granted now in cinema. He, he was a really great cinematographer. He pioneered the use of wide-angle lenses, which he used a lot in this movie, uh, low-key lighting, which he used a lot in this movie, as well as the use of the dolly, which, again, he used a lot in this movie, like that camera movement. It's very fluid. Despite the success of his professional life, Howe faced significant racial discrimination in his private life. He became an American citizen only after the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943. And due to anti-miscegenation laws, his marriage to a white woman was not legally recognized in the United States until 1948. Jesus. This movie came out when again? 1957. 57, okay. So he was already recognized as a citizen and as a married man then. But, uh, I mean, we, we talk about, like, these issues of, like, you know, racism and discrimination, like, there are things of the past. The, the 1940s weren't that far away. And we no. were keeping people from being citizens only because they were born in China and keeping them from being married because they were a different race from yeah. each other. Yeah, no, I mean, like, well, and that's the thing is, like, again, that, like, you know... You know, to, to kind of go back to this movie, that it's like, yeah, it's a pretty Caucasian movie, yeah. and 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 the fact that like on the one hand, like yes, it's certainly a, a film that's attempting to satirize like you know one of the most influential voices of mm-hmm. of you know c- culture and politics, but at the same time that like they bend over backwards to uh, to, to make him. sure that right. they they get themselves a nice clean cut 
jazz group mm-hmm. that won't that won't give him ammunition. Right. So it's like it, the the film's definitely you know still operating very much within the confines of uh, of a you know a very white centric. Uh, uh, you know, state point of view and right. all that. So, yeah, and, he, and even in the use of Mister Howe, I mean, like, uh, yeah, he like, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, honestly, I, 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 you know, just yeah. As you were like reading his name, uh, as, as you know, talking about his work as a cinematographer, I, I mean, you know, I, I was honestly surprised to hear that there was a prolific Chinese cinematographer mm-hmm. during this era because, I mean. This was not a good time to not be white. In Absolutely, America, for sure. Absolutely, like, yeah. And the I, I, you know, it's like one of those things that we talk about again in terms of like race and and stuff and and um, privilege. Like how much better someone who isn't white has to be to accomplish a lot of the same things that a white man has to be. Yeah. You know, like like how uh, lived in a time where he was one of the few minorities working in the film industry and had a, quite a prominent role. Um, he actually... And, and to be, like, revolutionary. On to, top be of revolutionary like, and to be revolutionary so and well, like, to be so well um, acclaimed. He earned a total of 10 nominations for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. He won twice for The Rose Tattoo in 1955 and HUD in 1963. And he was selected as one of the 10 most influential cinematographers in a survey of the members of the International Cinematographers Guild. Hmm. So this man is like basically like a filmmaking hero. Yeah. And it's not anyone, even today, I don't feel like people really talk about him that much. It feels like, it feels like a lot. Yeah, I've never heard of him. And like I roomed with like three film students. Right. In, and in you hear about film... I hear about cinematographers all the time. I read about cinematographers. And when I watch YouTube videos about filmmaking, like, people reference cinematographers. And they're always white guys, you know? Like, yeah. and And I'm like, well... You, it's 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 really disheartening to to learn like in his career and his life how he had to face racial discrimination despite being a consummate professional at the top of his game. Yeah, and that, that's what I, I feel like. Life like pe- people who don't understand uh, what privilege is or who deny that privilege exists. Yeah. That's what they don't understand is that it's not it's not that that. It's not that people aren't given the same opportunities. It's that they face obstacles that other people don't have. Yeah. Like, everyone has the same opportunity. Yeah. But, you know, the obstacles that Mr. Howe had to endure to become the influential cinematographer that he was, like, there were, like, you know, hundreds of other white guys that didn't have to face any of that yeah. to have a career in cinematography. Yeah. You know, and there was, um, there was this, like, thing that I saw, like, play out in my, like, Twitter feed uh, recently. Um, people were talking about how, like, there was a Facebook group um, specifically um, devoted to, um, it, was, it was, I think, just, like, a Facebook group for, like, black cinematographers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were just, like, you know, they did, like, a kind of a, hey, let's, like, you know, let's, like, get, you know, get some names out there right. and just, like, you know, get some connections made to get, you know, some black and cinematographers and cinematographers of color, you know, opportunities to pair up with other filmmakers. And, like, the entire thread was just hijacked by, like, all of these white, <sighs> like, of you know film industry you what know, about people us? who were like who were who, who just like tried to completely sabotage the whole thing and it and it was just like so it, it was just like they were so they were so aghast at the idea that like 
that like you know a, a group of black cinematographers would like try to like you know work right. to network like, just, oh to, god yeah, forbid ne- network and, and and get some opportunities for each right. other and 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 that that alone the very idea of that just like completely intruded on on like on on your territory like that that presupposition that like you know your whiteness you know gives you gives you the right to and and the the entitlement to like to, they, like to, they've to never all heard these opportunities like they've never like heard that. of doing a favor for a friend exactly right so it was yeah it was it was really <laughs> really really astonishing honestly. to to see yeah to see how much grief that that effort stirred up we haven't um, learned yeah. we haven't learned anything like we talk like you were saying about like how uh, the attitudes in this movie are somewhat quaint and like I, in a way I kind of agree with you but in another way I'm like yeah we actually haven't learned anything like and, and when you were drawing the, the 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 comparison between this and punditry yes it works the exact same way pretty much like yeah. these pundits are just like doing the same thing they're probably sitting at a fancy bar somewhere in Manhattan like with a phone, well, now they have cell phones. Yeah, yeah. But you don't, wielding you don't need power, a phone at your table anymore. talking to presidents, talking to senators, yeah. and all the sycophants around them, just like trying to grasp for a little bit of power. Yeah. And meanwhile, like the people who are actually busting their balls off at behind the scenes, like you know, bringing you this great art or these great accomplishments, like we don't care about them because they're they're not they're not part of our group they're a different race yeah. we don't want them to fight you know yeah. it's bullshit well that's the thing yeah it's just like yeah i i i really i really hope that like beyond beyond the beyond the current moment that like more sectors of I don't know. There just there needs to be a better understanding that like it's it's not merely diversity for diversity's sake, right? Like because that's is, tokenism. Like yeah, yeah. It's it's not about that. What it is is that like embracing diversity is is about is about inviting in just like a wealth right. of points of view that like the predominantly white supremacist you know systems of our society just don't have mm-hmm. and yeah. um and 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 what's so when negative you, about that and 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 when you put in the effort to to broaden your perspectives like you're gonna get richer art and right. you're gonna get art that's gonna speak to more people it's right. gonna make you more successful ultimately it'll probably make you more money you know yeah <laughs> if if you know if you know if you know speaking to the masses doesn't also at the same time get everybody to want to tear the whole system down anyway there's a lot of good reasons to tear the whole there is down. there is a lot of but, hidden economic value in 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 actually being equitable, and I think that the peop, the reason why the people in power um, and, and these systems don't want to be equitable is because they like to hoard power and they like to hoard wealth. And the thing is, and influence, and like influence, your, yeah, which comes under power definitely. But yes, power, influence, yeah. wealth—they want to hoard yeah. all of that for themselves because they recognize that even though there is great money in equity, it's it's more equitable money. It's money for Everybody, it's money for lots of people. But if yeah. they can control the system, then they can keep that within a small group of people. Yeah. That's what they're interested in, yeah. and so that's why they'll throw a bone. I was talking to my friend about this because we were, we were talking about Hamilton and how people. Um, no, I'm not. This is not a knock against Lin Manuel or Hamilton specifically, um, although I do have opinions about that as well. <laughs> but um, how people just 
fawned over it and about how, oh, this is the beginning of, of equity on Broadway. Like, we're actually giving voices to these actors of brown and people of color, you know, like in this show about American history, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, Hamilton became just another Broadway show that elitists go to, those middle-aged neoliberals that then pat themselves on the shoulder and go home and tell their friends, oh, we just saw Hamilton. We must be so... <laughs> Uh, you know, like just trying to well, congratulate themselves well, about how how much. Oh, we're so equitable because we just saw Hamilton. We paid three hundred dollars to sit in the mezzanine, you know. And meanwhile, it's okay, folks, because Hamilton gives away ten dollar lottery tickets. So we the masses is like, ah, oh, you know, whatever. It's okay. When really, it's not okay. Well, that's the thing. It's that like at the end of the day, like you know, the the, the winners of the lottery aside, like the the majority of the houses of Hamilton are white. Right. They, it is it is still going to be packed with affluent Absolutely. people because you still you still need significant economic resources. It's tokenism. To, to it's be just able tokenism. To, to be able to get access to that art. So it's like on the one hand, yes, it is it is it is wonderful. What a diverse show it is. Mm-hmm. It it is wonderful to 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 reframe the the ideas behind you know the origins of America and to and to really you know embrace the country's identity as a country of immigrants. I think that is a wonderful mm-hmm. thing about the show. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's still playing to a completely white house for the uh, most part. So that. Yeah, it, and, it, it, and it, it hasn't changed anything because the rest of Broadway is still predominantly white and still has like the same issues of discrimination. Yeah. You know what I would love to see? I would love to see There's a season. There's no access. Like, I would love to see a season that looks like this. Maybe not this specifically, but I would love to see a season that has Hamilton in the Heights, the color purple, the whiz, once on this island, fences, a raisin in the sun. Let's put all of those shows on Broadway at the same time. Okay, let's have them running simultaneously. Would that ever happen? Never, ever, ever, ever would they let that happen because they treat it as tokenism. They're like, oh, we're throwing you guys a bone. Yeah. But then they're just, like you said, they're keeping it still in the country club. They're like, no, this is elite. This is only for us. $300 a ticket. Yeah. Well, anyways, after that little... <laughs> the point is... <laughs> Sorry, got swi- I got sidetracked no, there. No, I hear you. But I'm very passionate about that. You know, I feel like we do need more equity. We do, we do need more minority voices and i feel like if people really care about changing anything put your money where your mouth is you know the last two years there have been more plays licensed by women and people of color um specifically a large number of them by queer people of color because those voices are very important yes and yet which plays do we see Promoted. Which plays do we see actually put on by people on Broadway? It's not, you know, again, they'll throw a little bone here and there. They'll do, they'll do like slave play or something like that. But yeah. not, but the, not all those hundreds of again, the vast majority of plays that have been licensed are women and people of color, and yet we continue to produce plays that are written predominantly by white people. Yeah. There is a there is a really great video that um that came out in the wake of um of that incident that happened in uh uh, Central Park involving uh, Amy Cooper. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, there was this uh, really really great um, video that uh, Griffin Matthews, who's a playwright, um, put out 
um, describing his, describing like just the many, many experiences during his, uh, during his, the creative process of uh, mounting the Broadway, the Broadway production of uh, his musical, um, or I think it was a musical, it was either a musical or a play, I, I have not seen the work yet, um, the play is called Invisible Thread, mm-hmm. which by the way was a forced renaming from the production team um, from the play's original title, Witness Uganda. <laughs> Um, but like, but like, it's just like a seven minute video of him just like breaking down just like the, the, the constant ways in which the white creative Mm -hmm. voices, um, and, and, you know, the voices of like the, the producing company, like both, you know, just exert so much control Mm -hmm. in, in sort of invalidating the creative input of the artists of color involved in the production, while at the same time, again, engaging in this act of tokenism and and how they, and how they, you know, parade black artists during the annual fundraising Mm -hmm. gala and, and, and celebrate their own diversity while in fact not actually, um, while actually, while not actually investing in the the work and the actual creative vision of these incredible artists, so um, uh, we will definitely uh, include a link to this uh, really great video. Um, and what in, was the gentleman's name again? Uh, Griffin Matthews. Griffin Matthews. That's yeah. right. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's put. We'll put the video in the show notes so you guys. Yeah. Can yeah. It's watch. really really good watch that that really just says a lot about um, just how deeply entrenched white supremacy uh, is in. Um, in Broadway, it's even, it's so voices. important to have more voices, like you said, because we can only with with more diversity, art will only be richer. It will only give us. This is what I don't get either. Whenever people get in a tizzy about casting choices or about you know who's making what, um, like whenever we have like the the toxic ma- masculinity um, that culture talking about oh. Why, why do they have to make this a woman? Why do they have to you know cast an Asian in this role? What these people don't understand is we're not taking away anything from you. You still have your white heroes. You have tons of white heroes. Yeah, we're making it a richer experience so that you have more entertainment options. In what world is more options bad? Yeah, you know, oh. it makes no sense. <laughs> It kills me. You want more options, right? (laughs) I do. I do. I want more options. I think it's very important. Now, having said that and and going through this long tangent. Yes. You guys, let's, you know, support minority filmmakers, cinematographers. Go see more movies made by by Mr. Howe. They're very great movies. And um, fundamental movies, fundamental movies. Like, if so you're like, like, I'm sorry, revolutionizing the wide angle lens. Yeah. If you're motherfucker. pioneering. Like, yeah. If you're yeah. Uh, an aspiring filmmaker, I think it's really important that you are acquainted with the work of Mr. Howe. Honestly, yeah, clearly. So wrapping up the film discussion now, um, sweet smell of success, which was the how filmed movie that we saw today. <laughs> Where do you fall, Ned? Do you think... uh, Final thoughts. Do you think it is a bad movie? So-so movie, good movie, great movie. What's your final take? 
Uh, I'm gonna say good for right now. I'm gonna say very good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I think obviously there's, you know, much to be said for how much a product of its time it was. Mm -hmm. um, but I admire, uh, I admire the, the gumption, I guess you could say, of their desire to satirize however, however short they may have fallen, right. however much they may have been constricted by um, an overly uh, Caucasian male creative vision. Um, certainly, uh, the film is... Uh it's 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 a damn compelling noir thread and um, very richly written, very richly acted, um, beautifully shot. Oh yeah! And um, so it's definitely one that uh, I would very easily watch again, maybe even twice in a row. It's, it's very know. rewatchable. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it yeah. begs you to rewatch. But um, certainly, certainly, I know that I would I would be more than happy to soak up the details. I dug it. I mean, I, I guess it's no surprise where I land. Mm -hmm. I think that this is a great film. Really? Yes. <laughs> I feel like this is fantastic from top to bottom. Of course, there are flaws. There's flaws in everything. This is a tour de force. Acting, writing, cinematography, the choice of the subject matter. And like we were saying, it's not your typical noir. It's not a hard-boiled detective thriller. It's just a very interesting, meaty story about unscrupulous journalists and, you know, like just <laughs> double-crossing each other and about um, internal family dynamics and weird incestual tones. And I don't know, everything about that, and like the balance of power and, and uh, having like... You know, one cold, evil, uh, as you pointed out, sociopath, and then this sniveling, desperate, weasel sycophant. It's, I don't know, it's very compelling. It's so good. It's yeah. very compelling. Um, and uh, I I absolutely loved watching it for the third time in two days. And, and like I said at the beginning, this gives me vi like really Uncut Gems vibes. Uncut Gems is one of those movies that as soon as I finished watching, I was like, I gotta watch that again just so I can you know, soak up everything that I just watched, you know? Yeah. It kind of let, 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 leaves you reeling a little bit and exhausted in a way, you know? But in a good way. Yeah. Um, so I think that this is a great movie. I think it's one of the greatest examples of uh, film noir, American film noir, certainly, from the classic period. It stands up there with uh, Double Indemnity, with a Maltese Falcon, uh, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, I, it's great. I, I absolutely love it. Fuck yeah. Um, I hope that we get to watch more noir in the future. I think that we should watch I think, uh, some I more. Think, I think, yeah, I think this podcast needs some more noir. I like the, I think a lot of our art is, is pretty noir inspired, right? That's like up on the GSV. That's like, that's there's not, a lot of it. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, like a, there's a noir feel to it. I there's think. a lot of yeah. my favorite filmmakers that are highly influenced by noir. And yeah. we started out the podcast by reviewing Vertigo, which is kind of noirish. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, I think that that definitely fits in our wheel wheelhouse of gratuitous sex Absolutely. and violence. Absolutely. So thank you for watching a sweet smell of success with me, Ned. A genuine pleasure. Uh, I hope that you join me next time for another mm -hmm. schlocky masterpiece. And we hope that you guys out there join us again. We'll we'll take another movie and discuss it and play trivia and all those uh, nasty little tidbits that you've come mm -hmm. to love from us. Until then, the cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. Go watch some movies. Yeah. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. You guys always bring me the very best violence. No relationship, no emotions.